disoriented so we know where we're going back. Yeah, I know where we are. You know where we are? Yeah. Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 138 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you're listening from. Behind me right now, you are hearing a section of Cigard's History of Canada, a piece from Derek Barron's latest album called Recollects. The material heard on this track comes from field recordings that Barron captured while on a trip to the Boundary Waters area of northern Minnesota. And like his previous efforts on the Power Moves and Penultimate Press labels, this New York-based musician and sound artist finds unique ways to investigate aspects of memory, 
history and spaces, both domestic and environmental, through sound. And this new album of his comes out on Reading Group, a label Baron co-runs with Emily Martin, who he also collaborates with in the recording project Permanent Six Flags. On this episode, we're going to feature the work that they've been doing with Reading Group since they started it in 2016. You'll hear selections from almost every release that they've put out to date, plus a few tracks from some forthcoming titles. I also recently had a chance to speak with Derek about some of his motivations and curatorial choices behind running the label. And we also discussed his own solo and collaborative sound work a bit too. Before we get to those interview segments though, I thought I'd begin by playing a few tracks from some of the earliest reading group releases, starting with the very first catalog entry from a project called Billions. So from You Are Useless, I Love You, here's the track Secondhand Ecstasy.
I thought I'd start with a fairly basic question about the name of your label, Reading Group. Uh, for me, this, this kind of hints at this like book club-like feel, mm -hmm. and it seems that a fair amount of the material that you've released, you know, however abstract it may be, has a certain personal narrative quality to it. And so I was curious just to find out what the significance of the name was for you. Yeah, I, I really like that idea of the, uh, the personal narrative quality to all these releases. It's not necessarily something that I had thought of um, explicitly, but I, I think the guiding idea, you know, my thinking about this has changed so much over the past I don't know how long it's been now, two, two years or two, three years or something like that. Um, but what I was really interested in was sort of like finding ways that people, like documenting a bunch of different ways of making music. Mm -hmm. um, so rather than, rather than having like, okay, here's the whole field of sort of like contemporary field recording, like noise collage type of thing. I mean, I obviously I love that work, but like I'm really interested in putting pairing things together that maybe don't sound like they go together right. and just comparing what the approach is. Um, and to me that's that's a that's a joyful experience of listening and it approximates the the joy of the experience of reading too to just like not you know, take for granted that you that the meaning of something is pre-given, but just kind of have to immerse yourself in a work. And that's right. kind of like the, that's, that's the process that I'm trying to open up at least for myself. So I hope that that comes through a little bit um, for the, for the listener too. But I think that that it's probably no accident that, you know, this sort of personal narrative quality is going to come through with that because it's a lot of, um, you know, at its best, it's a lot of sort of non-idiomatic or sort of quasi-idiomatic ways of making music. So there's going to be that that signature there throughout. Sure, right. Well, you had a few releases of your own out on other labels prior to starting Reading Group. Um, but as I'm, I'm often curious to ask artists who run their own imprints, did you start Reading Group up as an outlet to release material of your own and I guess I asked that because you know one of the first two things that you put out was that cop tears release that you played on that uh, where you yeah. played that uh, cage piece and I was just curious if you know you were thinking of that as like hey I have this place if I have some work I can release it myself was that part of your motivation for the label yeah I, I think sort of almost not really at the beginning I was I mean, I had, this was, I, I started the label right after um, releasing an LP called Crooked Dances, which was on Penultimate Press, Mark Harwood's label, mm -hmm. and part of what I was so interested in in that process um, was that, I mean, actually the Cop Tears album had been done for a while and just sort of sitting on the shelf, um, and we weren't really stressed about that, or I wasn't thinking about it consciously, but working with Mark was really great, and working with, um, I've worked with Kev, uh, Kale, who does power moves, who I know you know. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've been working with him for a long time, and I was just kind of interested in cultivating the label practice as like a creative process of my own that can also help amplify and lift up other artists. Um, so, as a result of that, I'm sort of like I'm I'm wary of the of the vanity label mm -hmm. vibe, even though there's nothing you know, wrong with it necessarily. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
but I'm sort of in, in the years since, you know, I just did this one LP of mine along with Martin's and I've done some other things of mine sort of scattered throughout, but I try to be, I try to be conscientious at least of like, am I making something that I think actually belongs in this catalog? Uh, and if not, you know, it might, I might look for another avenue for it. Um, like I did a, I did a split tape with uh, Alec Lebeditis mm-hmm. recently and that was that was a sort of like inaugural tape on his new imprint. But I, I'm more interested in the idea of like letting the letting the curatorial approach guide the catalog rather than like anytime I have a new thing that I want to put out, I'll just sort of pop it out. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess this this next question probably ties in nicely then with what you're talking about because one of the things that I have admired so far about the label. Um, is that you have put out quite a, f- a few things from like lesser known artists, in many cases, artists with very, you know, limited back catalogs. So is it important for you to mm-hmm. keep reading group focused on, you know, mostly new or emerging artists versus, you know, people that have these vast or easily accessible catalogs? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's really, you know, I have this sort of like list, which now takes the form of a, of a, email draft in my drafts folder of my inbox, but it's the sort of list of like all the people that I would love to release work of. And it's like, you know, there's probably about 70 artists on the list and some of them are fairly well known. And then others are like people that I saw at a basement show in Northern Maine four years ago who just like blew my mind and Mm -hmm. they aren't on the internet and I have no way of contacting them. And so it's, again, I guess it is this process of like, finding these finding these sparks and feeling like works can works can be put into conversation with one another that might be fruitful like and that's why um for the for the most part other than the Voynerovich piece which we'll I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later on Mm -hmm. all the all the releases on reading group um tend to come in pairs Right, right um and that's that's kind of part of the part of the fun of it for me and it becomes it be, it becomes a sort of other logic other than like okay well we have this new release by this artist that lots of people know so I'm just going to do this big drop yeah. and you know when I'm working with you know cop tears when we first put that out nobody had heard of us except for our friends and it was it was fun to just pair it along with something to give it something to sort up against because I am often working with artists that have very few or no releases or they don't tend to work in the medium of recorded um, sort of album form yeah. pieces, whether they're sort of more on the on the composer end or sound installation artists or uh, video sound artists and things like that. So pushing into these other into these other areas as part of the as part of the fun for me at least another thing that that made your releases stand out to me right away was your choice of packaging you know quite literally the use of these oversized dvd cases made it easy to locate and identify things as a reading group release right away so i was kind of interested was like the the cd release were you like recycling old materials i mean what made that uh, an appealing uh, way to package discs for you yeah i mean those especially the first i guess that was the first four releases were on these thin dvd cases um and that was all 
basically stuff that I had lying around in my closet. Mm -hmm. And then having it in that form also allowed the the printing of the labels to be that much easier. And I, I could sort of like really put these things together, start to finish and like burning every CD myself. Right. Um, and that was, you know, that was satisfying for a while, but then it was sort of became this like, um, the, the margin on the amount of time that was being put into like every, and the, you know, these were tiny runs of like 20 or 30, CDs or something, but yeah. that's all to say that that we we sort of like sh we for the CDs at least we ship them out now, and obviously the LPs we do as well. Um, I, there was something about the like DVD case that was so appropriate, at least at the at the beginning, and I think it still is because it sits on the shelf and it like looks like a book, and yeah. you have to sort of grapple with I mean I'm I'm all too aware that like there's no there's no format that will solve every problem of what like people want out of you know these sort of micro editions <laughs> but I liked I really liked the idea of having this sort of like shelf presence where you you can stick it in with your books and it's like present in that way and so we're sort of like trying to point to trying to point to some of the the questions that we were talking about earlier about having to rethink how you approach this sort of sound object mm -hmm. rather than you know you sort of burn the cd onto your computer and then you throw it in the trash or something like that <laughs> right 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 <laughs> well i'm gonna start off this uh, first block of music with something from that cop tears release that we were uh, talking about that you played on and this mm -hmm. was one of the this was actually reissued last year by recital and interestingly enough i i had a question about whether or not Cop Tears was a, a one-off project or if it was an ongoing concern. And today I saw that it popped up that Cop Tears is playing a recital event in New York in the coming months. That's so, right. Um, so that's that's really exciting for us. So Cop, Cop Tears is sort of, it's not a one-off, but it's difficult because um, the bassist lives in Norway um, and two of us live in New York Another one of us lives in uh, New Jersey, but is moving to Arizona. So we sort of like we record when we're all in the same place, but mm -hmm. it's hard to really nail it down. But we so we are going to play that show, which I'm really excited about. It's in April, um, and then we also have another another album sort of in the in the works that we recorded last year that we've been sort of slowly slowly putting together. So we we would love it to be more. Um, present than it is, but we all live pretty far apart, so we, we do what we can. Right, right. Well, what was it about with, with this first one, uh, 13 Harmonies, which was, uh, this is based on like a John Cage piece. I mean, what mm -hmm. what uh, compelled you guys to tackle uh, this you know composition of his? Yeah, and this is the piece that I think all all four, so at, at the time of the recording of this album, it was uh, three of us, it was me, Andrew playing bass and Cameron playing guitar. Um, I play flute on this album, and then for this for this next album, we brought in um, our other friend John Welsh, who plays guitar as well. And we all four of us went to college together in New York, and just you know have always loved the the Thirteen Harmonies piece, and I think wanted to make some sort of a gesture where we play it in the sort of as amateurish way as. Mm -hmm as we are musicians well you know 
I don't want to speak for them. Andrew's <laughs> an, Andrew's a you know real sort of pro- professional musician musician. Yeah. But you know we're really like we have the four track tape recorder. We're in Cameron's uh, apartment in Queens at the time, and we sort of printed out the the score, and we just kind of hack through it and trying to experience the 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 joy of that music in a way that's kind of outside of the the super professional chamber group doing the perfect interpretation. Like I, I my flute is super out of tune the whole time, and just sort of like capturing the sort of amateur afternoon chamber joy of of this music was really what we were after. Yeah. It, it kind of comes across as like a small scale version of Meher Shalal Hashbaz or something like Definitely. that. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, let's play something from that release. This is Cop Tears with uh, Harmony 21.
Well, a lot of the work that you've done is built around the subtle layering of, of field recordings or the playing of rather stripped down musical elements within a noticeable space, you know, where like the space itself seeps into the recordings. And you mentioned your release, uh, Crooked Dances, out on Penultimate Press, where you were performing these uh, Satis uh, piano works within the clatter of a shared living space. So I was wondering for you do, you, do you find recording situations where chance and the unexpected plays a part of the process uh, to be kind of appealing to you? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that, you know, that this sort of chance and the unexpected is in there necessarily as a sort of byproduct. But I think the main thing about, at least about Crooked Dances, which which is true of a lot of my work, I think, is that I'm interested in kind of like taking the idea of the of the of the field recorder and then you know turning the microphone basically inwards um, or turning the microphone just to the like the the sort of unmentionable clutter of of the the space that you know presumably before the field recordist goes and in, into the field with the beautiful wind sound and the rustling leaves and everything mm -hmm. so there's something about you know crooked dances was was recorded entirely uh in my living room in an apartment i used to live in with four close friends and um due to some really strange turn of events we had a beautiful grand piano in the living room um we actually had a for a couple weeks we had two grand pianos in the <laughs> living room and they were nesting with each other but they were like really out of tune with each other so it was it was pretty brutal, but this was at a time when we only had one, and it was sort of mildly in tune. So it was just kind of a chance to, to, yeah, show that show that sort of home home life and the sort of carousel of people coming and going and people cooking breakfast and talking about the the bills and talking about TV and everything. And I thought that the sati would just be a that would be an appropriate thing to sort of project through that space just because he's Satie's music has been so important to me for so long mm -hmm. and um, and he's I, I think of him as a very sort of private and and domestic musician so kind of th thinking about sitting with his music inside of the inside of the home space was really important for me there it's interesting as I was preparing for this to talk to you and the show, not only did I listen to all the reading group stuff, but I spent probably the last four nights while I was working on questions and stuff like that, just listening to Sati's music. It's like yeah. the perfect, like end of the day, come down music. Right. I love it. <laughs> so yeah. Great. And that's, that's sort of been, you know, I've been, Sati's music was how I learned how to play piano when I was sort of 16 or 17. I started, um, learning some of his simpler pieces, and it's been just something that's been been with me ever since. And I've actually sort of always, I haven't thought about this in a while, but when I was recording for Crooked Dances, I recorded at least three times as much of Satie's music as ended up making it on the album. Mm. So I feel like I have a bunch of, I have this, on one of these hard drives sitting over here, I have an archive of, of recordings of me playing different sati music on that same piano so i should dust that off sometime and, right and, 
try to try you to could get put that out a, somehow. Crooked Dances Part Two could be yeah, the next. exactly. I'll have to, I'll have to shoot Mark an email see if he's keen on that. <laughs> right. Like yeah. yeah, the sequel or something like that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> more even more crooked or something like yeah. that. <laughs> crooked or dances. Crooked yeah. or dances. Yeah. Well, your latest album recollects utilizes field recordings from a family trip to the Boundary Waters, actually here in northern Minnesota. And mm-hmm. it's pretty sad. I've lived in Minnesota virtually my entire life, and I've never even ventured into the Boundary Waters. So yeah. kudos to you for um, <laughs> for doing that. It, it's a rugged area, beautiful country. Yeah. Um, but yeah, one of the sides uh, that's called Sagard's History of Canada features those recordings. And then on the flip side, it's actually some old cassettes that featured interview material, at least portions of it anyway, um, with your grandfather. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in, in finding out if, if you sensed like, I don't know, a certain degree of compatibility uh, or certain parallels between the source material or just drawing on sort of this uh, familial element uh, of the recordings themselves. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I'm, there's definitely a somewhat of a compatibility I would say that so there's the the trip was was uh, between my dad and I so we went up to the to the boundary waters um, I, I guess this was two years ago now um, and s- similarly to some of the spirit behind crooked dances the things that I found myself most interested in recording while I was up there was like my conversations with my dad mm-hmm. rather than like you know the the sort of like beautiful stillness of the, of the, you know, soundscape or something. Um, so it still ends up being quite, quite a busy record in a way, maybe more so than would be expected if it's a sort of like wilderness um, recording piece. But I was really interested in, as soon as I got back from that trip, my, my grandmother uh, gave me this box of, of cassettes that has all this really interesting to me at least sort of family audio on there and so I wanted to I wanted to bring in this this really interesting interview between my grandmother or my, sorry my grandfather and, and uh, his neighbor um, from the I think the early 90s or something and just sort of give the it's almost like his like his sound is sort of this haunting presence in in my trip uh, with with my dad up there so sort of like inter like laying them on top of each other to sort of show this show this haunting presence in a way mm-hmm. and that that sort of ended up just being that was magnified by um something that i go into a little bit on the on the liner notes of of the new lp um but that as i was research as i was doing some research on the on the area as i was up there i found that there was this so this guy um, Sagard, Pierre Sagard, who's the namesake of the of the track name Sagard's History of Canada, he was a Franciscan uh, missionary from like I think the mid 17th century, and he you know went from from France to to c- colonial Canada at the time and wrote this really really long book of a so-called history of Canada, even though it wasn't Canada yet, um, and at, at least as a nation, and he describes listening to wildlife and not knowing what he's hearing and then he describes like misidentifying all this wildlife while he's there and just sort of being sonically so out of his element that he doesn't really know where he's at and then there's 
there's this scene on on my record where my dad and I are listening to this thing that we think is a wolf, but it's actually an owl, and we don't know the difference mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you know we're like two like kids from the suburbs of Chicago, basically. <laughs> um, so so there was this like interesting sort of like Sagard is this like ancient or is this 17th century figure is sort of haunting the narrative, and in the same way that my grandfather, who's my dad's dad, um, passed away about five years ago, that he's sort of haunting the narrative in a, in a different kind of way. So I just kind of wanted to shoot it through with all those, with all those like sort of ghostly figures. Right. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you talked about, um, you know, playing piano and learning Satie's works, but you're also, I mean, a drummer, if I'm not mistaken. And, I am. Mm-hmm. um, were those kind of your first in- instruments that you were playing? I, I'd imagine you probably started the piano first. Um, I started piano later, um, okay. quite a bit later. I start, I think I was I think I was the drummer since maybe I was eight or nine, mm-hmm. um, and was you know I was kind of I was into that drumming world for for a while, and I'm not so much anymore. It's not necessarily that I'm against it in any way, but something about um, I mean, honestly, it's almost like at the beginning, I just like didn't want to move drums around because they're big and they're heavy. <laughs> right. And so the the immediate move was from, you know, I had sort of been playing piano parallel to that for a long time. And then the immediate move was from drums to like stuff, like ta- tabletop stuff that would fit in a, in a backpack or a suitcase that I could take on tour. Um, and I did some, some tours of Europe with just stuff that you know, fits in a, in a very small bag. And I was really interested in the sort of compact nature of that. And that's probably part of why I'm interested. I'm, I'm interested in the flute now too, just cause it's so portable. Um, but there is, I feel like there are ways that my, my study of the drums for, for so long has had influenced a lot of the work that I make. I can't tell if it's really there on the surface anymore, but mm-hmm. you know, it is, it is kind of always, there as a as a substrate i think yeah do you feel like even when you were um maybe listening through field recordings and and such that you're even kind of drawn towards little hidden rhythms and things like that do you think that comes through to a certain yeah, extent yeah i think so i mean there's there's definitely some there are some pieces that are sort of more on the tabletop side where i definitely engage with the material, engage with the like physical objects in ways that I learned how to engage with physical objects by trying to navigate musical sounds out of a drum set. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's a, a, a recent tape of mine on Guido Gamboa's label Pentiments called Harpist. And mm-hmm. that's sort of like a, that's a documentation of um, a time when I was working on a lot of tabletop stuff and then a lot of sort of live um, signal processing as well. And that material is basically it's all the different types of surfaces that you would find on a drum set but it's just sort of exploded onto a pile of garbage but i engage with it in a very percussionly way i think right right yeah yeah well along similar lines uh as the piece uh, recollects from your album uh like found audio from old cassettes also makes up the uh, Polish sound artist Marcin, is it Marcin Bar- Barski, right? Is from, yeah, Barski, yeah. Yeah, one of the newest L- LPs out on your label called Wanda's Dream. And this is interesting stuff. The material date back, dates back to like communist era Poland and features all these recordings that were gathered by this guy named Jan, or Jan, Jan I'm assuming is how mm-hmm. you... Um, mm-hmm. 
And I'm like the notes on the back really add to this the the story of these recordings quite a bit. And almost to me, like these recordings I made the connection to them, like they made these recordings almost like how people use Instagram or Twitter to these days, like documenting some of the most mundane aspects of their life. And, mm-hmm. but on cassette tape and kind of uh, circulating them to friends and such. It was, was that some, was there something like that that you found unique about how the cassette was used um, in this set of recordings? Yeah, totally. So, you know, Martin had had been working with this material for a long time, and this is a you know this is another example of some of what I was mentioning earlier. Of I was on this this solo tour through Europe and got connected with Martin, and he set me up a show in Krakow, which is where he's based, and we ended up just sort of talking. Yeah, I I pulled in at the at the bus station there, and he picked me up, and we ended up just sort of talking at a bar until four in the morning and just having so much to say and Mm -hmm. I I learned about this this project of his which at the time I don't even think was called Wanda's Dream or hadn't maybe hadn't taken form as an album yet but um, he's just a really a really really interesting researcher and had done all this work on these tapes that had been sent um, to back and forth to people either across the Iron Curtain or that people were just sort of collecting to document their lives. And I think this has an um, autobiographical uh, sort of personal narrative thrust for Martin as mm-hmm. well. So that's that's really salient there. And I think, I mean, part of it is I'm a little distanced from it just because I don't speak Polish. And so I don't mm-hmm. know all of what they're talking about on the tapes. Um, but Martin has ri- really written extensively on it, and the sort of the personal ephemera being gathered and then put in this sort of like um, frame together. It's just it really it really makes the the pieces come alive, and I think that Martin just just did a really a really beautiful job with that collage. So I was really I was really happy to work with him on that. Yeah, yeah. To me, I'm I don't know. There, I'm make connections to it almost sounding like this weird conet like project you know <laughs> right. like this the how distant and it all sounds but there is this i'll have to admit there are some high-pitched noises on some of these tracks that uh, like makes my spine hurt in places so it took me a while <laughs> right. to get over that <laughs> but it's a, it's an interesting mix on this record because it's like you know these nice dusty soft historical artifacts but then when the reel-to-reel starts feeding back, you know, that's just as much in the soundscape of that time as, like, you know, the sound of this Polish radio playing the disco music. So yeah. we, I, I love the fact that he, he left it all in there and just sort of having the having the clean with the dirty in that way was, was mm-hmm. great. Well, let's give people a chance to check this out. So this is uh, the piece called Sermons Over Modern Talking, and this, again, is Marcin Barski. Thank you. 
prawda i męstwo. To wartości bardzo ważne w życiu każdego człowieka, a zwłaszcza w życiu chrześcijanina. Chciałbym, byśmy dzisiaj spróbowali przybliżyć sobie znaczenie tych dwóch wartości dla naszego życia. Prawda jest bardzo delikatną właściwością ludzkiego rozumu. Dążenie do prawdy szczepił człowieka sam Bóg. Stąd w każdym człowieku jest naturalne dążenie do prawdy i niechęć do kłamstwa. Prawda łączy się zawsze z miłością, a miłość kosztuje. Miłość prawdziwa jest ofiarna, stąd i prawda musi kosztować. Prawda, która nic nie kosztuje, jest kłamstwem. Żyć w prawdzie to być w zgodzie ze swoim sumieniem. Prawda zawsze ludzi jednoczy i zespala. Wielkość prawdy przeraża i demaskuje kłamstwa ludzi małych, zalęknionych. Od wieków trwa nieprzerwana walka z prawdą. Prawda jest jednak nieśmiertelna.
all this desolation sometimes feels like one big great mirror held up to my own heart, my own mind, my own soul, if you, if you will. But I just feel very desolate, very sad, very anxious, a little bit scared. And the thing that I keep thinking about is my own death of not wanting to die, this incredible fear of dying. Um, if I really think about it, like if I think of sentences like, oh, are you going to David's funeral? Are you going to Wanarovich's funeral? I just think, I mean, I freeze. If I think of myself lying inside some plain box or whatever for a burial I'll one day have, it just makes me freeze. But right now I'm riding through all this beautiful landscape. It's just scrub brush, landscape, plains, and the, these brown, dark mountains in the distance covered with smog or smoke from the fireplaces this time of year, and big explosions of trees just suddenly uttering out of the earth, uttering out of crevices in the earth, and it's really wonderful. It's a feeling of winter, and yet the sun's so warm. I just don't know which direction to go in. It's like I live in New York and living in that city. It's one of the most cruel cities I've lived in. I mean, I, I remember going to Mexico City and walking around and, you know, riding around the outskirts at some point around the slums and just realizing that that was the future of New York. I mean, there's 20 million people, half the male workforce unemployed, and the poverty was just so extreme, and if you weren't poor, you were rich, and basically there seemed to be very little middle ground, at least on the obvious surface, because the poverty was that extreme. I remember some uh, Mexican kid saying, oh, you're rich, you know, because you could travel around, and... I was thinking, like, where I come from, I'm hardly rich. I, you know, I barely have, like, you know, a few thousand in the bank or something, but I realized in Mexico City, yeah, it is rich. In New York, it may as well be. I mean, if you're sleeping in a cardboard box, getting some grading in the wintertime, or made to, or forced to go into a shelter with a bunch of lunatics and desperate people, yeah, I know you're rich if you have your own windows, your own four walls, whatever. So living in that city, it's just a city of death. I mean, it, you know, what with the disease killing most of my friends or, I mean, most of my friends, just, you know, a handful of my friends, but the weight of that is so great that it feels like it's most of my friends. Maybe the people I most cared about have died. And if I can, if I can think about people who have died, I've got some kind of distance. It puts distance against my own disease, my my having this disease. But <clears throat> so in that moment, if I could talk about other people who've died, it's like, yes, I'm very much alive, and it eases up some of the anxiety I have about the possibilities of death. It's just that I don't know how to take care of myself. It's 
I never learned how to take care of myself in the most obvious ways. I mean, I've always gone on a level day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month survival. And it hasn't been extreme for me by any means the last few years. I mean, it, you know, with the money I've made for my work, and uh, it's eased that up a little bit, but there's still this tension in me because I... Despite whatever money I have or don't have, I don't know how to take care of basics. I never learned to use tools in a way in terms of preservation or self-preservation, in terms of my health, in terms of my body, in terms of whatever. And to suddenly be in a position to have to work to live, have to try to live, have to make extra effort that most people, most other people have the luxury of not having to take in hand I just don't I don't know where if I'm going to make it and I so I come out here and I'm, I'm riding around this New, New Mexico landscape and there's something I just love about the landscape but there's something overwhelming and even frightening in moments but it's absolutely embracing I mean whatever the body feels like in the midst of so much space where you can just look to the mountains um, and it's it's unreal it's like a, a train set landscape postcard landscape postcard clouds it's all the references are so surreal and I could I could even think of living here or living somewhere in this remoteness. But it's like, a, you know, there's something I have to give up, something that I carry, something that I've carried since I was a kid, and I'm not even sure what that is. And so I live in New York City, and I isolate the hell out of myself, and I barely see people. I hardly ever talk to people. You know, one or two people I'll talk to daily, but even then, it's like a, there's a sense of stasis of not moving in a certain way. And in another way, it's like marking time, like marking a calendar day by day, but... It's not what I want. And coming out here and living in remoteness or desolation isn't particularly what I want, but it's something I wish I could do. And I don't, something tells me I can't because it's like the people that one's surrounded by out here, at least the sense I have from Albuquerque or some of the cities I've passed through, it's just as fucking desperate as New York. It's like, it's a desperation of a nation, of a society, of an illusory tribe. It's just this, this, It's this grappling with something that is totally pre-invented and we're all rushing towards it and we're all moving towards it and and it just amazes me that some people find it easy or some people find it pleasurable. I don't think I do in the long run. Well, putting out vinyl is an expensive and, and risky option for smaller labels such as yours, uh, especially ones dealing in this more marginal sound art and, and experimental music area. So, you know, putting out a three LP set of the tape journal recordings by the late artist and activist uh, David Wanarovich was, in my opinion, a pretty bold move on your part. Mm-hmm. Um what compelled you to want to document this part of his archives versus something like maybe, uh, you know, his more musical-oriented projects, which he which he did some things. He collaborated with different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, 
you know, there's been a bit of there's been a bit of documentation of some of his more musical aspects of his works. So it's a FOMO, which is an acronym for In the Shadow of Forward Motion. It's a piece that he did with Ben Neal in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Um, That actually recently had a double LP reissue, I think only maybe about six months after the first edition of um, the Cross Country. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, I imagine that they must have been working on that before they knew that I was working on what I was working on. But so there's, there was sort of something in the air with him. Um, but I actually came across uh, his tape archive here at NYU, which is where I work, New York University. And, um, you know, it has this um, amazing, seemingly endless archive of, of his cassette tape journals and, and recordings of his answering machine. By the way, for, for folks maybe who aren't familiar with this artist, David Wojnarowicz was an um, artist and activist who was living mostly in New York um, in the 70s and 80s, and he became really active in the, in the AIDS struggle, mm-hmm. um, in the, especially in the late 80s and the early 90s, um, sort of famously embroiled in a, in a censorship case when he had some work which was really critical of some uh, government figures who um, were being really ne- neglectful of the AIDS community in New York. So just a, a, a fascinating artist, amazing writer. Um, his books are his books are really really moving, and so you know I was really surprised to find that he had all these cassette tapes where he had been journaling, doing this sort of audio journaling, basically for the past like almost the last fifteen years of his life. Um, so there's a there's an immense archive, and I haven't worked through all of it. I've worked through most of it, but these these three that I chose to put out on vinyl, um, they they were sort of bound together. I mean, they were literally bound together with yellow masking tape, mm. and they were all labeled uh, cross country, and they documented a, a trip that Wojnarowicz took um, from New York to. Los Angeles and stopping especially in the the American Southwest which is where he really loved to spend a lot of his time and it's where he took his last trip out of New York was there and he went back there many many times over the last decade of his life Um, and it's just he's got this just amazing way of balancing between describing his sort of inner world and some of his anxieties Um, a lot of this stuff was was recorded right after he was diagnosed with AIDS um, and then also describing the landscape and describing his his friends and his art and everything. So he's a he's a fascinating figure, and there's just so much to there's so much to learn there. And I thought that it was really interesting too, just that um, when I started working on this release and I was getting in touch with the with the Bornerovich estate, um, the people who sort of own the the copyright now, and they put me in touch with somebody who at the exact same time was writing a book that was transcribing all the tapes. Oh, okay. um, yeah. And that book, that book has since come out as well. It's on Semiotext. It's called The Weight of the Earth. Um, and I ended up working with the person who put that book together, Lisa Darms, and we thought it would be great to sort of collaborate because there's so much on the tapes and now you know on the vinyl release that you wouldn't get just by transcribing the words. 
um, not only this actual sound of his voice, but stuff in the background and, you know, sound of cars going by and the sound of, you know, music on the radio that's playing as he's, as he's driving across Oklahoma or whatever. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a, um, massive archive to work with, but I feel really, really lucky to have been able to work with it for so long. Yeah. Are, are there quite a few other things like that sort of hiding in his archives, other tape journals of that nature, other, um, or documenting different specific periods of his life? Um, so there's, there's a bunch in his archive, basically. So he started recording tape journals in 1980 and he died in 1992. Um, and the tapes that I put out are from 1989 um, I think February to June, 1989, and they were—they weren't his very last tapes, but they were some of some of the last. Um, mm -hmm. And then he started; his health started to really deteriorate in 1990. Um, so, most of the other ones and the stuff that he recorded throughout the 80s, um, the earlier part of the 80s, are mostly him in his apartment in New York, mm -hmm. um, and it's a very different vibe. And he's mostly talking about—he's either talking about, you know having just come home from a night of, like, cruising in the park or, you know, having just come back from an art opening of Keith Haring or whatever it is. Um, and it's got a very different rhythm to it because it's late at night and sometimes he's, you know, drunk and he's recording. I mean, it's fascinating material as well, but the stuff from the, stuff from the road trips was a, was a really, it really stood out to me just because the pacing is so interesting mm -hmm. and sometimes there's, like, 10 or 15 minutes where he's just, recording the sound of trucks going by so yeah 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 and he has such a, a well he's such a natural storyteller for one but totally. he has such his delivery is so powerful too i you know i wanted to ask you too just you know for you being an artist living in new york city and i know the circumstances now and then are drastically different but mm -hmm. you know were, were there certain insights that he shared in these recordings that you know particularly resonated with you as an artist yeah, that's a good question. I mean, when I when, when I was first really digging through this archive and trying to make sense of it, I mean, I would leave the building where the tapes are literally housed in and walk along the street to the train and like that's the that's in many cases the street that he would be describing. Um and it, when he's describing going to the Christopher Street piers on the west side of Manhattan as this sort of like um almost like this 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 Edenic space of, of anonymous sex, like, you know, I walk by there every day. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the peers obviously don't exist anymore um, in the ways that they, that they did then. But it's, it's, it's similar to this like haunting quality. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't, I don't quite feel the sort of like dread that was enveloping the artistic community there because of the, the particular crisis of, of um, the way AIDS just sort of ravaged right. that community, but it is when, at least for me, when I listen to these tapes, it feels like he is talking directly to me, and yeah. he sometimes says, like, you know, he's recording this ostensibly for himself, or it's a tape journal, or it's not clear, but he says, like, why do, you, why are you listening to this? He'll say that into the mm -hmm. tape recorder. So it's, you know, it's sort of it it pulls you out from your sort of slumber in with the headphones right and it sort of really makes you think about your your presence there it's really really interesting stuff right right 
Well, you well you put out another release that you know based on uh, spoken word, but drastically different uh, uh, results and intent here. But this transcription poems by Luke Martin is mm-hmm. another really fascinating release, and maybe I'll let you describe the the premise here and how the work was created because essentially what it was is people, if I have this correct, like would give him these restaurants to go to. And he would kind of transcribe the, the the dialogue and stuff that he heard in this given space. And these would form these poems that he would later uh, create and then uh, dictate uh, that, that form the basis of this tape. Is that is that accurate or am I missing elements of that? Yeah, I, I think that's the whole process. I mean, he set up this sort of um, this really great sort of multi-step mechanism so that like he would get a recommendation from somebody and then he would go do something and then transcribe and then he would give it to the person who had recommended the place to him and then they would perform yeah the transcription that's right so it's it's this really interesting i think all all of it if i'm not mistaken is in los angeles um when he was in graduate school there um and i've since met a bunch of the people who are who are on that tape and they're all just super great and it's yeah, it's this really way of sort of mapping, mapping the space, but it's also this sort of massive, um, massive like collaborative project in a way right. that's almost it almost makes me think of uh, like some of Sean's, um, Sean McCann's like like Music for Public Ensemble. Yes, and how yeah. it's these sort of like huge group efforts that all these people are sort of sending material from from around the country and around the world, and I, I really appreciate that gesture. So it is it's similar to the to the Wojnarowicz in the in the spoken sense, but it's almost the exact opposite in how collaborative it is. Right, right. Yeah. Well, what I love about it too is how it forces the people to like engage with their, uh, well, I don't say their community, but their the spaces that they live in in this sort of fly in the wall sense too. Right, right. Which is really great. And, and the fact that that, I mean, I always think about like, you know, he's transcribing what he hears, but he has to. He has to select from that because right, if right. he's in a restaurant, there's a bunch of people talking, then he's just picking up the things that are most salient to him. So you almost are getting this this record of what he was listening for, right. what he was listening to in that moment. It's like not it's not neutral at any step of the process. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I thought you know before we we sign off uh, here that you could maybe mention some of the things that you have coming out on Reading Group because you did provide some tracks of some forthcoming re- releases. So I'd l- maybe let you speak to that here just to wrap things up. Yeah. Um, so we have we have a few things in the works now, which are is is really exciting. Um, the two things coming up, I think soonest, if all goes according to plan is a new CD um, by the artist Tim Simmons, um, who doesn't tend to work in sound form. I don't, I'm not aware of any other work of his that's sound-based, um, but this is a recording of um, a book release event that he did where he had a bunch of people read um, this this uh, text that he had made, this really, really beautiful book. Um, and this, the title of the title of the piece, um, uh, not the title of the CD itself, but the title of this of this one track being "Aspect Us and Depend on a Dislang from." It's sort of this like cut up 
cut up language and mm-hmm. marginalia, um, just sort of really fascinating project. And what will be paired along with that is actually the first, um, the first actual book publication that we're doing, um, mm-hmm. which is a new book by Emily Martin, who I run the label with, oh, and okay. em- Emily is is the other member of Permanent Six Flags. Um, we had we had a we did one sort of middle of the catalog maybe a year and a half ago or so. Um, so Emily and I are Permanent Six Flags, and we run the label from our living room. Um, and she has a new book, actually one of three books, I think, that is that of hers that are coming out this year. Oh, okay. Um, and so we'll be pairing those two together, which will be great. And then the sort of next big thing on the on the horizon is an LP of Carmen Moore's incredible soundtrack to um, the film Personal Problems, mm-hmm. um, which if I have the year right, I think was in 1980 or 1981. Um, but really amazing film uh, made by Bill Gunn and sort of been, it's been touring around the States recently. It was, I think it was recently um, re, they did a sort of digital remaster and they've been playing it around. It's an incredible film and Carmen uh, wrote this amazing score and it just so happened that, you know, he lives about three miles from where I work. So I've been oh. going over there and we've been sort of going over the lo- looking for the old tapes from the 1980 recording sessions. And we're going to, we're going to be putting that out um, hopefully by the summer. So okay. stay tuned for that. Very, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what we'll do is we'll start off actually with the, the piece that you provided from that Carmen Moore. We'll start with uh, the theme from personal yeah. problems and then we'll just take it from there and play some of those other things and uh, wrap it up with another thing from your, release called Recollects. But uh, I want to thank so much, uh, Derek, for yeah, taking time you. out of your busy week and uh, chatting with me. Thanks. Thanks for everything you do on uh, on the podcast. It's like been it's been very influential to me over the years. Well, yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to jump into Carmen Moore's piece right here.
aspect of ascend to them on this land from Sart, O Sart, Frath, you co author as Green Dune. Okay. Now, um, I realized I forgot something, but we'll go back to it. Um, now let's try. Let's try already, like introducing a kind of delay, and we can do it around. When you get to the bottom, to Dune, or you know, Dune, Dune. Uh, so come right back up to aspect. We're just going to use this page as a cycle for a little bit. Um, but we're going to we're going to. So there's always going to be like uh, a not a leader, but there'll be the first person that reads, and then the person to the sort of front on the left. So Emily will be a follower, and then you Kyle will be a follower of Emily, and et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to be spaced by one line. You're involved. One line behind each. Uh, no, that's what that's what I was gonna say. We're gonna do six lines. So, for example, aspect ascend depend on a dis lang from. When I say uh, one, two, three, four, five, six. When I say from, Emily is gonna say aspect at the same time. So on the sixth line. On the sixth line. Uh, is that clear? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then again, obviously, because otherwise we won't get around, we loop back to the top. Uh, Tom, you can just stop. Uh, up to him. Yeah. Or Dylan. Dylan. And another thing to keep in mind, also, like, I, I, you know, I said that I'm going to be leading it and there'll be following. But we want to, but we'll do another quick exercise after this to play with how to adjust and listen to each other's pacing. Mm-hmm. So uh, if someone, you know, you can raise your voice to do it or find some other way, but if you want to slow us down, slow us down, and we all should be listening to that. Um, and maybe to that, to that degree, uh, I shouldn't start. Um, <coughs> so you'll be last, Daniel. And then you'll be first. Okay. Okay. So, so Andrew, you're gonna read from. Oh, sorry. No, you're gonna, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I read once through. You're gonna read once, yeah, exactly. To finish it. So when she reads from, I read us back. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The, yeah, I'll, the, know, I'll know when it happens. <laughs> yeah. So everybody's listening for Lang. As their prompt. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Is that
kuat. Close it for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, make sure nobody's hands are underneath. Careful for your phone. No one, no one hands there. Grab your hands. I got it. I'm good. I'm good. good. Now let's have one quiet moment with the piano closed. Are you ready to open it? No? Okay, we're gonna wait a little while. That's a glass house, yeah. It's a big skyscraper. It's nice colors in there. You don't want to open it at all? You can leave it, leave it closed. Yeah, but we're not going to touch the glass house, right? Yeah. Because it's too delicate. Might break. If you're rough with it, yeah. yeah. Good but, uh, I just still need what? little baby one. What's that? I just little. I touched it um, nicely. That's okay. We know you are nice. We're just not going to touch really it too much. It's gentle. It's okay. But... Wait for Emily, okay? That's a really nice touch, yeah. Just a tiny, tiny. That's all you can do. It's a gentle one, yeah. Do the one at a time game? Yeah. Can you They do sometimes they don't work. I don't think you'll be able to reach, but let's just do one at a time. Actually I'll do this the, this one button makes each note go for longer. Super gentle, yeah. Hey Ethan. Maybe the most dangerous sculpture in the world. They're being really gentle because they know what would happen if they were really rough. Oh, hey, do you know where Ethan is? Right here. Yeah. Hey, bud, they're singing happy birthday. Oh my gosh, so exciting! Happy birthday! Happy birthday! Still, and I, just today, I was looking at the labels on the at the grocery store, and they say containing high vitamin C and they say 100% and I wanted to tell 
come back and Can't ask be 100%. me. I said, what do they mean 100%? Yeah. I think what they mean is 100% daily, daily, um, uh, what, what they consider a daily amount that is good for you. Yeah. And I think that's what, I, but it's not very clear. But if I bring that home to me, it just confuses him now, so I just don't just Yeah, now let me ask you something. I'll ask you, uh, and if you don't want to answer this, these, yeah. can, these kind of questions, you don't have to. I know that the first, I know, the the, the, the awareness I have of, of the real problem is when he got sick. Oh. But now there was a lot of years in between. Oh, that we yeah. traveled. We had he did a lot of travel. <gasps> we traveled all over the country, and he loved traveling and driving. He traveled did that a lot. for business or for... Uh, oh, ple pleasure. Okay. And then when we first, when he was first retired... Otherwise he made a pretty good living through the yes, 50s and 60s yes, and yes, 70s yes. and 80s. Yes, yes. And so, and, and when we he began traveling, people said, now when you go to Palm Springs, uh, you know, look at this place. I, uh, we were thinking of retiring. And when you go to Sun City, you know, look at some yeah. So you, he had a little business for a while. He had a little list of things, of places that he could, um, uh, did. Hard enough to put a big log on, like maybe this. gather around the fire and bring things to an end for this installment of the show I'd like to thank Derek once again for taking the time to speak with me if you'd like to find out the complete playlist for this show you can go to our website at freeformfreakout.com there are links that you can follow to bring you to each of the releases played or you can head directly to www.readinggroup.co to check out all of the available titles and for ordering purposes. 
If you have any questions or comments, you can always get in touch with me at fffreakout at hotmail.com. Check back in a couple of weeks for a new episode. And as always, thanks so much for listening.